0: Welcome to bonus episode 476 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, featuring a deep dive on a recent report by the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board about Section 702 of FISA. The board ended up divided over that report, and so we've got two board members, one from the majority and one from the minority to talk about the report, where they agree, where they disagree, and give us a good feel for the debate that is emerging over Section 702. Before we start, I will say again, we're about to express views that don't reflect necessarily the opinions of our institutions our clients, our friends, our family, not even probably our pets. At least that's my experience. So our two board members, it turns out, you know, luckily for ease of reference, the division between the board was the Democrat appointed members. Three of them uh, voted in one direction, though with some splintering and the Republican appointed board members uh, voted in a rather different direction. So Travis LeBanc representing the majority of the board is a partner at Cooley. He's been the chief at the FCC of the Enforcement Bureau. He was at DOJ's OLC. Uh, Travis, welcome. You've been on before, so it's good to have you back.
1: Hey, good morning, Stuart, and thank you for having me back. Delighted to be here for this Friday, the 13th edition of the Cyberlaw podcast.
0: Yes, snake yeah, bitten. Okay. And Beth Williams, who's teaching at GW Law School. She was assistant attorney general for legal policy in the Trump administration. She. I was in private practice at Kirkland for years, a decade or more, and also counsel for judicial nominations at the Senate Judiciary Committee. Beth, great to have you. You've never been on.
2: No, it's great to be here, but I am a frequent listener, so so happy to be on.
0: All right. Okay. Why don't we jump in and talk about the things that the board agreed on and maybe the background that we need. Maybe, Travis, could you talk a little bit about what is the I'm gonna only say this once more. The Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. From now on, it's the P Club. What is it? And what
1: is Section 702? I will admit, Stuart, that you know, many government agencies have snazzy acronyms, but the P Club just unfortunately isn't one. But I do recall that when I joined the board the first day I got there. There was a message from board member Ed Felton in my inbox that said, welcome to the club and so, it <laughs> has been a thrilling four plus years, I think for me now, and I am delighted to be back with you again. The P club is a bipartisan five member executive branch, independent agency that is charged by Congress with ensuring that the nation's efforts to protect us against terrorism are balanced with privacy and civil liberties. As I mentioned, we are a bipartisan board. There are five members. The chair is Sharon Radford Franklin, and she is a full-time board member. The other four members, which includes Beth and Ed and Rich DeZeno and me, are part-time board members, which is, it means essentially we have two jobs for for each of us day to day running an agency and also whatever is our other job engagement. But typically we have our own SCIF, which is a secure facility where we can work with classified information. We all have top secret security clearances and we are day to day conducting oversight of national security programs and activities. And we are also providing advice to the intelligence community on potential activities or or ongoing activities for which they can come to us and ask our advisory opinions. We typically don't publish those, but I think it's an important part of our mission because um, many of these agencies would have no other place to go to ask anyone about privacy and civil liberties. They do it internally and they spend a lot of effort and, and devote a lot of resources, generally speaking, internally, but allows an external resource who's looking across many different components and not just looking at one particular agency so
0: there's a lot of people a lot of reasons why people would want to report from the p club and my guess is as we're going to hear the fbi probably feels a little p clobbered but the request i assume came to you for a report on section 702 where you volunteered but everybody recognized that it's about to expire So there's a lot of interest in Section 702 and how it's been administered. And the report had a lot to say about that. Can you give us a little bit about what Section 702 is and why it's
1: become so fraught? Of course, and as a matter of just history, this is the second report that the board has done on Section 702. The first report was done around 10 years ago in 2014 and was one of the board's first reports that it did this report is meant to essentially update and replace the prior report you know after 2014 there were several changes since then to the program we've also seen that the report is relied upon pretty heavily by the intelligence community and the u.s government more broadly because it is the unclassified statement on what is the 702 program it's also been relied upon by many of the European Data Protection Authorities and the European Court of Justice in evaluating data transfers between Europe and the United States. Section 702 is a program that originally emanated uh, post 9-11. It initially was pursued under the president's constitutional authority as an executive order 12-triple-three program, but Congress, for lack of a better word, legitimized it and codified the program. As a matter of statute, as a general matter, section 702 allows the U.S. government to compel the collection of communication with foreigners who are reasonably believed to be located abroad. And as part of this program, the U.S. government annually goes to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court to present procedures on targeting or minimization or querying, searching those communications that are approved by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. But the court does not approve the specific targeting of any individual, and the court does not approve the specific querying of any collections for U.S. person. One other key component of the program is that if a U.S. person is communicating with a foreign person, reasonably believed to be located abroad, then that communication is collected, may be collected by the U.S. government and is referred to as an incidental collection. So there are targets who are foreigners, and then to the extent that U.S. persons have their communications collected, those are considered incidentally collected. We do not know the scope of that incidental collection right now, meaning we don't know the number of U.S. persons involved But that gives, I think, a flavor, Stuart, for the background and some of the key issues that emanate from the report and the congressional debate and conversation around the reauthorization of Section 702.
0: Just to be clear, as you said, there are foreign targets, but the foreign targets communications that are intercepted are communications that come out of or otherwise touch on or utilize U.S. infrastructure like U.S. uh, routers or switches or email services. So there's a lot of U.S. stuff mixed up in the 702 surveillance. It's just that the surveillance is justified by the target who has to be a foreign intelligence target.
1: Yes, correct. Okay. So let
0: let me turn to Beth. And again, sticking with what has been agreed among the five board members, how valuable is the 702 surveillance from an intelligence point of view.
2: So, thanks, Stuart. So, it's incredibly valuable. And I think that's one of the things that all five of us unanimously agreed on, is that there is an extremely high value to the program. You know, I think Travis Travis explained the 702 program exactly right. One thing I would add to that is that the fact that the Fifth, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, Reviews 702 targeting decisions on a programmatic basis was by design. Because before 2008, before Section 702, what was happening was that even, you know, two terrorists who were talking to each other in a foreign country, if they happened to be using a U.S. email program or some sort of U.S. communications device, The government was having to go to the court and get a court order in U.S. courts to intercept foreign intelligence of two terrorists in another country. And so that was becoming impossible for the government to to get actionable foreign intelligence information. So Congress acted in a very bipartisan manner to put Section 702 in place and also to put a lot of checks and balances around it to ensure that there were protections for privacy and civil liberty. So as far as the points of agreement we all agree that the program is incredibly valuable that the US is better off and safer with the program with, than without it we all agree that the program should be reauthorized and we all agree as did the board in 2014 that this is a targeted program it's not bulk collection that's a term that gets thrown around and has been applied to other programs but All five of us have agreed that this program is not, and that's what the report says. And I think we all agree that there's room for reform.
0: Okay, so Travis, there were some statistics and some examples of how valuable it was. Can you give us a feel for the ways in which you evaluated the program?
1: Yeah, so for just about any report that we do, we generally approach it by looking at how the program um, provides utility to the to the US government. And here we can look at metrics, which is what we what we initially aim for. We have a sense of certain things, such as the number of collections. For example, you know, as of 2021, NSA acquired approximately 85.3 million internet transactions a year from upstream collection. And that tells you something, right? That tells you that it, it's a massive program, right? It also tells you that there's a huge investment in it and the u.s government has a lot of information that it can it can use for intelligence purposes now that that came from you know uh, another stat that may be useful to this particular audience is that in 2022 the section 702 program targeted approximately 246,000 non non-us persons located abroad so you see you know and, and that is now that's a substantial increase in targets from 2013, but it tells you that there are a lot of components of the U.S. government that do see a need for a program like this. Then we look at vignettes in which the program has been useful in either preventing terrorist attacks or cyber attacks, or have just gained intelligence about the intentions of a foreign adversary, a Russia or an Iran, for example. And so we look at those to understand, okay what's the benefit of the program and we weigh that against the cost of the program you know we sometimes look literally at the cost of the program but this is this is pretty cheap as intelligence programs go isn't it why as intelligence programs go i haven't compared it to every intelligence program Stuart. but i i will say we also look at the risks to privacy and civil liberties of the program uh, what are the risks to us persons what are the risks to the privacy and civil liberties of foreign persons to the extent that they are accounted for. And we do an analysis of the risks and the rewards, and then make recommendations at the end of the day about legislative changes that we think are warranted, as well as administrative or policy changes that the administration might do on its own.
0: I think you are getting to the points at which you start to peak clobber the FBI. And I wanna talk about that first because that clearly was where especially the majority, saw risks and made recommendations for pretty substantial reforms. Let's start with why the FBI is even in this report. I'm assuming that NSA is in charge of figuring out how to intercept these communications and that they more or less run the program. Why is the, uh, let me ask Beth, why is the FBI involved in Handling seven oh two down
2: so the fbi has has two main roles for the most part, you're totally right stored. NSA does most of the collection, but FBI does do some of the collection, particularly with downstream collection. so that's the first part
0: actually, but let me just stop you for a second for the listeners. upstream, at least in my general view of this, upstream means catching communications while they're still on a backbone or a switch. It's plucking things in transit. And then there are downstream communications where there's an actual communications provider, like Google providing Gmail and uh, you're actually going to the person who is handling and storing the information for the the intelligence target. So, we talked briefly about upstream, but now, as you point out, the, the FBI gets involved, particularly when we're talking about
2: downstream. That's exactly right. So, the FBI does have a collection role, a somewhat, you know, smaller than NSA's, but a collection role with regard to, to downstream collection. And then also, you know, as one of several intelligence agencies, The FBI has to run queries in order to try to use the information that was lawfully collected for their mission. And so obviously different intelligence agencies have different missions. The FBI's mission is both a national security mission and also a law enforcement mission. And so they can use that information. Now, one important thing to keep in mind with regard to the FBI, the FBI has access to a a tiny slice of the overall collection of 702 information. So they only get, I think it's approximately 3.2% of the of the information from the targets that are collected. And those are the targets that are from predicated national security investigations. So when the FBI runs a query, they're running in basically 3.2% of the of the collection.
0: So that's clear when NSA is collecting these things or when these things are being collected, I think of them, there's somebody in the back room who deals them out. And every time a target has come out of the FBI's, an FBI predicated uh, national security investigation, they say, okay, you're already looking at this problem. We'll send all of the information that we've collected on that target to you.
2: Yeah, I don't know if there's a dealer literally in the back room but yeah. but I think but but that's what the FBI is searching. They're searching from this database, you know, it's it's roughly 8,000 a year targets that they get and that's that's a privacy protective point and and that's something that people in Congress are talking about whether that the FBI only having access to that slice should be codified. That's currently the practice, but some people are talking about codifying it. And the reason the FBI runs searches, though, whether they be searches related to a U.S. person term or whether they be searches not related to U.S. person term, is to further investigations. So to try to put pieces together, to try to understand where bad actors may be communicating with other compatriots to try to defend against potential cyber attacks or attacks against critical US infrastructure there's a lot of reasons that you might want to run a term and it, and it doesn't have to be a person it could be could be something related to critical infrastructure to see if that is a target of a hostile foreign actor so that you can try to avoid any any attacks on it
0: okay travis It was the queries by the FBI that drew a lot of attention and a fair number of proposals for reform and concern on the part of the majority. Uh, Can you give us a sense of what the restrictions are as a matter of law and policy on FBI searches of the database?
1: Yes. I do want to respond a little bit to the conversation that you and Beth were just having about why the FBI is in this report because the FBI is not the only component of the intelligence community that queries 702 collections. CIA, NSA, NCTC, and FBI all query 702 collections for US persons without having to go to a court to get prior approval. However, the reason the FBI is significant is that um, CIA, NSA, and NCTC conduct substantially smaller queries on US persons of 100% of the database than the FBI does of its approximately 3.4%. Just to give you an example, in 2021, CIA, NSA, NCTC conducted approximately 8,406 queries. In 2022, those same three agencies conducted approximately 4,600. And 84 queries of U.S. persons. But if you look at the F, and they're looking at, again, 100% of the database. If you look at the FBI and its 3.4% of the database that they are querying, the na- numbers are orders of magnitude larger. In 2020, the FBI conducted 1.32 million U.S. person queries. In 2021, the FBI conducted 3.39 million U.S. person queries. In 2022, that number was substantially reduced as a matter of several reforms that the FBI implemented on its own, which I'll get to, Stuart. I know that was your question. I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. But in 2022, there were approximately 204,090 U.S. person queries. Queries now in 2022, 204,000 is still a large number. I mean, think about orders of magnitude for what the other three components were doing. It's, it's about 550 U.S. person queries every single day by the FBI. And when you run those queries, you have to wonder what's the benefit of them. What's the great benefit of running? Oh, actually, 500- let me
0: let me let me stop you there, Travis, because I'm having worked at NSA and worked with CIA and NCTC, uh, less NCTC. I know just how scary it is for those agencies to have anything to do with U.S. persons at all. So, it's not a surprise that they would be reluctant to query the database uh, for U.S. persons. And it is quite logical that everybody would say, hey, if if you're worried about U.S. persons who might be a national security threat, Talk to the FBI. That's their job. So it's not. It's not. It's not completely fair to say. Oh well, NSA and CIA. They're so much bigger and they have so many fewer queries. Um, but anyway. So what's the standard for doing uh, queries, and how well has the FBI lived up to that standard?
1: Yeah. So the current standard for an analyst to conduct a U.S. person query is they have to have a reasonable belief that there is likely to be foreign intelligence information, you know, returned from the query. That's the short, short standard. It's a reasonable basis. Each of the uh, components that run these queries had their own procedures internally. But by and large, the FBI over the last couple of years has made several changes to its, its procedures that have reduced the number of queries. For example, they, rather than, you know, allowing an analyst to default into searching 702 collections, they require an extra click and a written justification now to support the reasonable belief. And they've also reduced the number of batch job queries substantially by requiring attorney review and approval. They've created an internal audit function that has also assisted with addressing many of the compliance issues that they have had over the years. And there have been a lot.
0: Can I, can I ask you one, one question about the, the queries I am under the impression, but I would love to hear it from you that by and large, the first thing that you get, if you are a, if you're conducting a query is something that says you had a hit or you had a no hit, that is to say there is, there is something in this database or there isn't. And so if there isn't, all the only information you get back is, no, there's nothing here. Is that
1: right? I think that is accurate for today. It's not been accurate the entire program. There have been some issues, for example, where uh, when a query initially may have been run, it would have shown 10 words around the actual query to give you some context, but the FBI has changed that. So now when you run a query at the FBI, it should come back and say hit or no hit. And that's actually part of the recommendation that we have accounted for in the board to require prior court authorization from the foreign intelligence surveillance court, because the number of query hits that actually come back are quite small. So, you know, I mentioned that in 2022, there were 204,000 queries in 2022, that same year, FBI personnel access content returned by a US person query for only 1.58% of such queries. So even though they ran 204,000, 98.5% of those actually were no hits at all. So if you're worried,
0: there's two ways to be worried about what the FBI is doing. One is you're afraid that they're seeing private information that maybe we would be uneasy about. And the other is they're just out of control, searching everything. But on the first point, it does sound as though the statistics that you you read out with the very large numbers really need to be reduced by two orders of magnitude if what you're worried about is the privacy impact, because the FBI agent who did those queries isn't learning anything.
1: Yeah, but yeah and, and to be fair, even on the 1.58% that are returned, you're going to have you know many false hits, right? You run a search for John Smith. There may be five John Smiths in there. That doesn't mean relevant at all to your investigation. It's actually much less, but you. this is where I get confused because we have a program that is designed to collect the communications of foreigners and help us. We then have a program that only looks at 3.4% of all those communications, right? So, and then of that 3.4% that the FBI can actually query, they only get a hit on 1.5% of their queries, which may be something like, 0.1% of the actual database. And so I ask myself for reauthorization. I say, if you have this program that has saved us from foreign, from attacks abroad, why would you put the entire program at risk solely for the basis of accessing that 1.58%
2: of the U.S. person queries by the FBI. Can I answer that, Stuart?
0: (laughs) Exactly. I'm going to call on Beth to to answer Travis's question.
2: Because the 1.58% are the most important queries. Those are the ones that you're actually getting a hit and a potentially a connection between a compatriot, a bad person in the United States acting with a bad guy abroad, those are the most important. I think the the question that, that Travis has raised is a good one. Why would the intelligence community fight so hard over 1.58%? And it's because... Those are the most important ones. Those are the ones that are protecting the United States. But I think, start, it's important. You know, we, we delved right into queries, but I, I want to just take a step back to make sure that everyone understands the difference between collection and queries. Because what a lot of people are concerned about, understandably, is that the government would be collecting Americans' information when they shouldn't be, right? That's that's a big problem. Why is the government listening to my phone calls? Shouldn't Is the government reading my emails? And and I think a virtue of our agency, of PCLOB, is to to call out problems where they do exist, and we certainly have in, 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 you know, Rich in my separate statement, but also to say where things are working well. And with regard to collection, the National Security Agency's targeting compliance rate is 99.85%, and the FBI's targeting compliance rate is 99.99%. So what does that mean? That means that the government is not intentionally or inadvertently targeting Americans for surveillance through Section 702. That's the collection. That's what's coming in the door. So I think that's important to just understand as a starting point. Then the separate question, which we were just talking about, is querying. Once you have this information, what about querying? Are they running too many queries? and i think they were you know i think i think unquestionably the number of queries was high and i think that it was too high and i think everybody's recognized that and the fbi has made some important changes to bring those numbers of us person queries down they've gone down 94% they're still high but a 94% decrease is a is a significant decrease and that's because you know their system had an opt-in had an opt opt out as opposed to opt-in, so you were automatically running queries in seven zero two information before and now you're not you have to specifically opt out of it, and that's that's reduced the number of queries a lot you know the FBI is not blameless, and we we certainly go through some problems with it in our separate report, but i think I think understand the understanding the difference between collection and querying is very important
0: and travis, I know you'd like to jump in, I'm going to ask you to focus a little on whether these, you came to the conclusion that these queries were bad faith efforts to get information that no investigator ought to have, or whether they were what I would describe as institutional habit. My sense is that the FBI thinks one of its big comparative advantages over local law enforcement is they've got lots and lots of databases they can check, and so there is a A premium put on using those tools, and and so my question is: Did you actually find abuses of the kind that people are worried about here in significant numbers, or is this just people not quite understanding that there were more limits than they thought on conducting queries?
1: Yeah, that that is a great question, Stuart, and I think you know. So often, as we've had conversations about this report, people focus on what divides us, where our differences are, rather than where we are unanimous. And as as Beth just indicated, we are unanimous when it comes to having concerns about the number of FBI U.S. person queries. And also, I think about the compliance incidents that took place, which I think does go to your Your question, Stuart. I mean, when I think about the program, I do think it's worth noting that although the targets are foreigners, it is a feature of the program that there those foreigners' communications with U.S. persons are collected. Um, You know, it could be architected in a way not to do that, but it's but it's not. So why? But you wouldn't you wouldn't understand the conversation if you
0: left out half of
1: it. Yeah, or or you wouldn't have the you wouldn't have a conversation involving a U.S. person. You would just have foreign to foreign communications. Now that would be a different program, and for the reason you just said, Stuart. We intentionally designed it to collect incidental collections of US persons. So it is not inadvertent and it is intentional. But when I look at the FBI's compliance challenges that they've had, it's not just that there've been a sheer large number of 5 million US person queries, but I'll give you some examples. In 2021, the government conducted hundreds of non-compliant queries concerning individuals arrested in connection with civil unrest and, and protest, for example, FBI personnel in Washington, D.C. conducted 141 queries of identifiers associated with activists who were arrested in connection with protesting the murder of George Floyd, George Floyd between June 3rd and, and June 5th, despite the lack of any reason to believe there would be information on these individuals in 702 databases in 2021. Thousands of searches were improper and extended to community leaders, repair people, and even political leaders and their, and their staff. I'll give you one real example. In 2021, following an audit of an FBI field office, DOJ reported a non-compliant batch job query that involved the names of over 19,000 donors to a congressional campaign. Most of whom were U.S. persons, right? So we've got substantial numbers of queries. One, for example, that led to 19,000 queries of that were non-compliant. That is part of the problem as well. So you have got to address the question of. I'm. I'm you got to let me finish. When they run these queries, that 1.58 percent that returns the ones that are the allegedly the most important and the ones that collect the communications of U.S. compatriots. I ask, where are the criminal prosecutions? Of those compatriots of all of these, you know, the, these, you know, events that we're we're worried about coming about, I, I don't see those. So, are the abuses intentional? You know, I don't know that we found any instances where, in an unclassified format, I can say anything about whether there was an intentional abuse or not. But what I can say is that we have seen that due to a lack of training and policies and stronger policies and procedures. the fact that these queries can be run in any office, there weren't enough auditing done during the pandemic, the batch job queries. When you start to look at all of these things together, it is apparent that the bureau itself, when given the chance to get this correct, hasn't been able to do that. That's what's apparent.
0: It's taken them a long time and multiple tranches of effort, but I guess I'm, and I'll ask you to keep this short because we're going to turn to Beth, but I offered a proposition, which is that this was the Bureau doing what the Bureau does with all of its investigations. It always checks databases. It likes to do that quickly. And if they have an investigation of any kind, the first response is, well, run these names. And did you find something, you know, you said, well, they ran the names of the people that were picked up in, uh, Black Lives Matters demonstrations and I can imagine somebody saying, well, if they were talking to foreign terrorists, we would want to know. And you haven't said there was some evidence that that was not the spirit in which those queries were run.
1: Look, there are 5 million queries we're talking about here, um, and we're talking about thousands of non-compliant queries. So it's I don't want to characterize every single query one way or the other. But I do think that a large component of the issue story is exactly what you said, which is. Essentially, you know, either a fishing expedition or a way of looking at a culture that searches everything without actually ensuring the proper safeguards on the 72
0: collection. (laughs) Let me ask... Beth to weigh in here, and Beth, if you get a chance, can you talk a little bit about the significance of the uh, searches for cyber attacks in affecting these numbers and what those searches might mean in terms of those queries might might mean in terms of people's understanding of what's going on when the FBI queries the database?
2: Sure. So let me respond first to, to just the point that Travis made about you know, very few prosecutions, because I think that this is a, kind of reflects you know, a, a fundamental problem with, with one criticism of the program. I think you can't say, well, the program has no value because you're not getting prosecutions. And on the other hand, also say they're using it as a domestic surveillance tool for prosecutions and for law enforcement. It, it can't be both. I think it's a good thing, in general, that it's not being used as a domestic surveillance tool and coming up with all of these prosecutions for national security and/or other other crimes, because that's not what it's for. And as the unanimous board said in 2014, as in Rich Dizeno and I said again, you know, this year, if you wanted to conduct domestic surveillance against U.S. persons, 702 would be a terrible way to do it because you're getting you know such a small thread of only conversations with foreign targets so i think there's just a fundamental misunderstanding there of prosecutions versus national security just because you're not getting prosecutions from a from a program doesn't mean that there's not a tremendous national security value even for us person queries that comes from it so just just to start there and then to say so let's talk about the queries and the improper queries cuz i think that That's right. It's more appropriate not only to talk about the total number of queries, but to talk about the ones that were improper. And one of the things that the FISA court said that has been released is that only 5% of the improper queries were Section 702 information. And of those, 84% were non-compliant because the FBI mislabeled query terms. Like, for example, a U.S. person was labeled a non-U.S. person or vice versa. Maybe a non-U.S. person was labeled a U.S. person. So, the query may have been justified, but the term wasn't properly labeled. And And then, as you pointed out, Stuart, I think with regard to the cyber attacks, a large number were batch query jobs by a few individual users. So, that means... You know, for, you know, hypothetically, if the government thought that there were a hundred potential targets for cyber attack and they ran those hundred terms every day to make sure that they weren't coming up in the communications of hostile foreign actors, those would add up quickly, even if those were the same terms. And so, and that's what a, a batch job is. And you could see, and those are also what's called victim queries. Sometimes you might run a term or the government might run a term to see if somebody was a potential victim or if a you know critical infrastructure or other piece of cyber technology was was the focus of a potential attack.
0: Okay. So this is this is interesting and I guess I'm learning as we go. If a lot of these queries are on efforts by foreign hackers to break into systems and either they're an effort by the FBI to figure out who the attackers are and what their tradecraft is. Or they're trying to figure out who the victims are and warn them. Uh, Travis, it seems to me that, one, uh, the fact that they're doing a search on a U.S. person who's a victim should not alarm anybody who feels uh, that they need to watch the FBI. And also, I guess I would say if they're doing thousands of searches about uh, the North Korean hacking attacks, those are with law enforcement authorities. But I don't expect any prosecutions of North Koreans anytime soon. And yet I do want the government still to be keeping tabs on what the North Koreans are doing when they start sending uh, malware to the U.S. So doesn't that put something of a different frame on some of the numbers you were using?
1: It doesn't for me, Stuart, because, you know, when I think about the program, I, I frame some of the compliance incidents. We discussed, you know, the extent to which it could be used as a domestic surveillance tool. But the Department of Justice has gone to the FISC over a hundred times in the last five years with reports of FBI personnel accessing specified section 702 content with queries that were not designed to find and extract foreign intelligence information. You know, And there's a provision of FISA 702 F2 that requires the U.S. government, prior to conducting a U.S. person query solely for evidence of a crime, in connection with a predicated criminal investigation to go to the FISA court for approval. And in every single year since 2018, the U.S. government has never gone, even though we know of instances where they should have gone, meaning they were using the information in connection with a predicated criminal investigation and they didn't. On the cyber side, you know, like you, Stuart, I spend a lot of time doing, you know, traditional cyber security work. I do get concerned about whether there's information from 2018 or 2017 in a database that's going to help me with a cyber attack in 2023. I'm also quite aware that there are lots of tools at the US government that the US government has available to it that they can use to help identify victims. But we took this into account in our recommendation. We the recommendation 3 that we made in the report is that the US government should seek the prior court authorization of the FISC when there's a reasonable belief that a U.S. person query will return content with two exceptions. One exception is if they get the consent of the person. In this case, we believe victims, in all the instances of examples that I've seen where they're purportedly victims queries, we actually, they had to go to the victim anyways because you have to go and ask the person what's their email address. What, you know, what what phone numbers do they use so that you can then get that information and run it through? Secondly, the second exception is, so so first exceptions consent. The second exception-
0: Actually, can I stop you on that one, uh, Travis? I question that. I would have thought that if the FBI sees an attack coming from somebody they know launches attacks and they see it's going to a particular IP address, they want to know, well, who's got that IP address and what's their phone number so we can call them up? But doing a query on that IP address is a U.S. person query, isn't it? They don't know whether they've got consent because they don't even know who it is. And they're trying to find out who it is. I I just don't think that you can say they should have gotten consent from that party before they started doing this search. That's worse than asking for a FISA court order, isn't it? It's going to take
1: forever. It's really not that hard for the U.S. government to get subscriber information. If you've got an IP address, it's really not that hard for the, the FBI to obtain subscriber information. Once they have the subscriber information, they're going to want to talk to the person because they're going to want their identifier so they can they can run them through. So I actually don't, and, and there are other databases that are out there where you can search for certain information. What I would like to note though about the recommendation is the two exceptions. One consent, the other exigency. And I want to, because I, it really is a balanced recommendation. And here's the context words all right
0: i'm going to stop you because we've we've gone a long way in which i have talked to you but beth has not we have moved to i think a discussion of the principal recommendation that divides the five board members and broadly speaking as travis has sort of indicated two of the board members in the majority said you need to go to the fisa court if the fbi is going to get content information about a, a u.s person from the database but we are willing to create the exceptions that you talked about. And I think it's also the case that you had said, we're not saying you need to go there before you do a hit, no hit check. You can determine whether there is some information in there before you go to the FISA court. And so that was the recommendation at least of two of the three members of the majority. Am I right?
1: Yes, that is, that is correct. What we're saying is number one, the FBI can run a query. And if it gets you know, a no hit, it's perfectly fine right now. They can rule out whatever theories. So now we're down to the 1.58% that return hits. And of those 1.58%, you, can, you don't have to go to the FISC if you can obtain consent, or if you can, you can gain an urgency exception. So I think that is an accurate portrayal, which for me, by the way, Stuart, which for me means that at the end of the day, all of this comes down to whether or not the bureau sh- or the government should have to go to the FISC for that less than 1.5%. That's what divides us. So Beth is very clear that's not uh,
0: what she thinks they should have to do. So Beth, why, let me sp- let you speak for yourself.
2: Yeah, thank you. I, and I want to be clear, you know, and I think you said this at the outset, Stuart. This is a 3-2 report, so we didn't join in, in any portion of it. So we're going to talk a lot about recommendation number three, but but we didn't, it didn't join in it in its entirety. So, look, one thing to keep in mind that I think gets lost, and General Nakasone said this recently, is this all is about balance. There's no perfect solution because we don't live in a perfect world. And it's about striking the balance between keeping Americans safe and being as privacy protective as possible. That's the question. And so, with, with respect to, well, you could go get the consent of potential victims or you don't have to do it if it's exigency, I think the, the huge problem with that is that assumes omniscience on the point of all of these a- agents and analysts. They don't, they're not acting with omniscience and they don't know often what they don't know. So if they see somebody's phone number, an American's phone number, a 202 area code in a cell phone on the battlefield. Maybe that's a victim or maybe it's a co-conspirator, but you're not going to call up the guy first and say, hey, do you mind if I run your phone number because you might be a victim? That's not how this works, because you could be tipping off that person and then just, you know, destroying whatever lead you have. So it assumes all of these like perfect situations where. Everybody knows who's a victim, and everybody knows what's an exigent circumstance. One of the things that, you know, when we, were, when we were doing this, I went back and I read the 9-11 commission report, and one of the things that comes out is they didn't realize there was an exigency. They thought there might be connections. They thought there might be bad guys in the country. They didn't know a horrible terrorist attack was about to happen in two weeks. If you know there's an exigency, then maybe you can act quickly under the majority's recommendation. But you don't always know when an exigent situation is coming. The other thing I would say about going to the FISC under the majority's recommendation is that in many ways, it's the worst of all worlds because it's not a heightened probable cause standard. So you don't have to have heightened privacy requirements under that, but you have a tremendous amount of more paperwork and delay and time because now you've got to put a whole package of information together and then go to the court before you can run a preliminary investigative search. We don't always have time. You know, people change their cell phone numbers, things change and things happen. And I think that that's not just the world that, that we're living in. And so I guess my final point on that would be, one, we actually think that more authorization and more, I wouldn't say author, more oversight is needed. And we actually recommend more congressional oversight because there are concerns that this could be misused. The Carter Page concern was a very real one for us. But interestingly, that was, that surveillance, that improper surveillance was done pursuant to a warrant. And that was, you know, the FISA court got improper information and it was done pursuant to a warrant. But there needs to be more oversight, more protections in place to make sure that these authorities that have been given to the intelligence community, to our government to keep us safe are not misused.
0: Yeah, I guess I will say from my personal experience, I've read through all of those applications and the FISA court was, as far as anybody can see, utterly inert. Well, you know, on the f- there, were, there were four of those requests, and by the fourth request, the steel dossier had begun to completely fall apart. The public reporting that uh, had been in the first of the applications had been questioned pretty seriously, and the court just kept saying, "Yeah, yeah, sure, fine, keep keep it up." It was not an impressive performance by the court, and I guess I do, Travis. I have to ask. What is it we think that the court is going to do with those queries? They're going to be told, we know there's something in there and we'd like to go in and we think that there's reason to believe that we would find some uh, useful intelligence. Is the court just saying, I'm going to have my own judgment about whether there's really likely to be intelligence there?
1: Yeah. Stuart, if Beth would criticize the recommendation for not having a probable cause standard. I just want to be clear that in the interest of bipartisanship, if Beth wanted to support a probable cause standard for the FISA court recommendation, I would join her. I okay, point scoring point aside. <laughs> here's this thing, Stuart. Um, and, and I think it's we ought to be clear because we're talking about Carter Page and Steele. That has nothing to do with 702. Carter Page has nothing to do with 702. But even if it did, let's suppose for a second, even if it did, my solution to that would not be let's trust the FBI to solve its own culture so that this doesn't happen again. My, my solution to that would actually be to put a court there to oversee it so that a court could look at the information that the U.S. government prepares to support the reasonable basis to believe that there's likely to be foreign intelligence information returned from the content that they know he's hitting in the database. The pushback that we got initially was if you if you just did probable cause it would end the whole program so we said okay we'll do the same standard as you use today then you all you're doing is this the same thing and we will make it so that you don't have to go for the five million queries that you ran you only have to go for the 1.58 percent of queries if you want to go to the court and then the court would have an application and the courts are trained to review applications for surveillance, whether through the Title III criminal context or the Title I context. Courts make these decisions all the time. It's not something new for a court to do, to look at an application and make a decision to authorize a query or surveillance.
0: So let me ask you a question about how that would work. Let's take what happened in Israel last weekend. And the Bureau has terrorism targets in Gaza, And they see that there are communications from Gaza to the United States, and they are worried about the possibility that there will be an attack in the United States as well as in Israel. They go to the court and they say, we're worried about this. And the court says, well, do you have specific reason to believe that this person is going to say something that would tell you about that? And the answer, I think, is no, we, he's a terrorist, so he, we think he might be talking about terrorism, and he's talking to somebody in the United States, and we, would, we really want to know if he's saying anything about terrorism.
1: I, is that enough to meet the standard or not? I think you would also be able to articulate potentially the exigency circumstance. So I want to put that, whether that that would fall into the exigency exception.
0: Well, I'm that's the right. way you can skip going to the court, but you still have to meet the standard, don't you?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they got to meet the standard today. If you did it today, Stuart, you'd have to meet the same standard. I,
0: I'm, I guess I'm asking the question, do you think this is a good idea? Should we aggressively asking the court to enforce a standard that says, no, If you're just if you're just worried about terrorism in the United States after what you saw on TV for the last three days, That's not good enough to get into the database.
1: Look, here's what you have. First of all, it's the same standards today. Second of all, you might have an exigency exception if you didn't have that. Thirdly, and this goes directly to it, you have to have the selector for a U.S. person and you have to know that you had a hit, you know, with this and, you know, you know, it's in connection with what's going on in the Middle East. That's to me, that is a substantial amount of information that would seem to, maybe i'm not a judge the judge will decide but we'll we'll come close if not easily exceed the definition of, of reasonable you know to i mean you you've got the name of the person you know they're in contact with a terrorist and you know there's a hit in the database and you know you're saying that our intelligence is that an attack is being planned in the united states
0: it's the last that we don't have we we just want to find out if there if there is one okay so let me stop here cuz we're going to we're running low on time i do want to give Beth a chance to talk about one of the minority's recommendations that the majority did not share. And it's one that I thought was very interesting and it kind of goes to some of the things that I've been dancing around as we've been talking about it, which is the recommendation on vetting. Uh, Beth, can you tell us what that recommendation was and why you thought it was necessary?
2: Sure, sure. Just just briefly, I just did want to respond to one thing Travis said, sure. which was that, you know, about the FBI policing itself. To be clear, Rich DeZinot and I did not recommend that the FBI should police itself with regard to some of the queries that I think Travis is most concerned about with regard to First Amendment protests and political searches. We think that there should be C- clear congressional oversight of those so that if they were improperly run, there's political oversight over that. So just to, just to say that, but to talk about the vetting question. So um, Member O and I suggest that 702 should be used, this is information lawfully collected, to make sure that the United States government is properly vetting foreigners who are coming into our country to, to live or work here. And for people who are applying for a top-secret security clearance, so Travis was talking about a lot of numbers, there are seven 7 million is the number of visas given to foreign citizens to enter the United States each year, and that's legally. And then 1.3 million is the number of Americans with a top-secret security clearance.
0: Can I just ask you, if, sure. just, I, I didn't quite understand why you would need to look at the U.S. database in order to vet people who were not U.S. citizens who were trying to get into the country. That, was, that, that left me confused. The other one I understand, but uh, do you really need to be doing U.S. person queries to uh, to check on somebody who's coming here from... Oh, young? no.
2: No, no, no. I'm glad you're clarifying this. This is not U.S. person qu- queries. This this would not be a U.S. person query. So if somebody is coming into the country, you know, and we have a database of lawfully collected information that says they're in constant contact with a terrorist cell, I would like to be able to have the government run their name before they come into the country. It would not be a U.S. person query.
0: Is there a restriction on that now?
2: Well, the standard is reasonable, reasonable, likely to find foreign intelligence information.
0: Oh, even even on a non-US person.
2: Right. And so, look, there are there are complexities to this that, you know, we can't discuss on this podcast, but that's the standard right now. So if I don't have some basis to believe that I think that your name is going to be found in that database, then maybe I don't meet the standard to run that foreigner's name in the database. And so I think it would be helpful. We think, Rich and I think it would be helpful for Congress to make clear that the database of lawfully collected information can be searched for foreigners who are coming into the United States before they come so that they can have appropriate vetting.
0: Yes. So can I ask Travis, and and briefly, Travis, but isn't it just nuts that we can't just check people who are coming to the United States without having a reason to believe that they uh, are terrorists to see if they might be in touch with terrorists. It's nuts to say you can't look in the database for those folks. It's not U.S. civil rights that are at risk. It's you know the possibility of a terrorist attack.
1: As I as I've shared before, we believe that if you had a
2: consent Based exception, you could get that.
0: Okay, so your thought is we put a, a box on the form that yes. says, and by the way, but we're going to. That's gonna... what
2: we suggest. Ours is consent. Ours is a consent based recommendation. Get their consent. This is very easy to me. If someone wants a top secret security clearance, they can to this. If someone wants a visa to the United States, get their consent. And, that, okay. and okay. that's and, what and, we and,
1: recommended. And
0: Beth, can they do that now, or is that something where that no. might be a legal question? No,
2: right now it's not clear that even if they put that checkbox there, that would be okay under the statute. And so. I think if they're going to be amending the statute or having yeah, having changes to it, if this is not a clean reauthorization, it would be nice to clarify legally that a checkbox for consent is fine in those two situations.
0: God, that's legislative malpractice not to do that. I'm sorry. I, all right, I, 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 will, I will stop offering my own views on that, but it's wild. And it sounds to me as though, while it isn't part of the recommendations on the majority side, since they've talked about consent, they would presumably be comfortable with a consent provision with respect to non-U.S. persons?
1: Um, I think that if it were statutorily authorized, that the statutory authorization should come with consent, and that would be okay. Okay. Yes. Would that address the recommendation that you all made, to?
2: Absolutely. That's what we're recommending, that that okay. they just require a checkbox for both foreigners entering the country and for people who are applying for top-secret security clearances.
0: Okay, I'm going to say while we've got consensus on something that wasn't actually obvious from reading the uh, almost 300 pages, I'm going to call it because I really appreciate you guys being so open and flexible about talking about your recommendations. Beth, Travis, thanks for joining us. This has been episode 476 of the Cyberlaw Podcast.
1: to the clom. <laughs> <And still>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>